Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's go. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, We're going to start where we left off last week in verse 35. Remember that the point of, of the first half of this chapter was that the whole of the Christian faith, everything in the Bible, the gospel, and all of the good doctrine that flows out of it, hinges upon the reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection in the flesh, his victorious triumph over death and sin and all of its consequences through his real physical resurrection from the dead. Paul pins everything on that truth when he says midway through the first section of the first part of 1 Corinthians where he says that if, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are, we're fools and we're to be pitied more than any men and our faith is futile, this preaching is futile and we're still in our sins. And then from that true, certain deal of Jesus rising aspect of Jesus' true bodily resurrection flows this truth now that Paul gives us as a beautiful hope for the Christian, and that is our resurrection as well. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read. I'm going to stop, read, stop, read, stop, and explain. And then at the end, I'm going to summarize with three implications that I think we can draw out of this text. So let me pray, and then, then we'll read. Lord, thank you for your Bible. Thank you for your word. Lord, in a world that is awash with information that distracts us and confuses us, thank you for the grace that you have given in the sufficient and completely true revelation of yourself through your Bible. I pray that you would humble our hearts as Kwame prayed for us earlier, that you would humble us so that we might see truth. Lord, I pray for the believers in this room, for people in here who are already Christians, that what we speak about today from Paul's letter to the Corinthians would be an encouragement to us to lift our eyes from this passing world and this passing flesh to the certainty of life together with you forever. And Lord, for people that are not yet believers in this room, for for, for my friends that are here today through an invitation, or maybe they think they're a Christian, but they're not, I pray, God, that by your grace, by your sovereign grace, you might cause those friends to turn from trusting in themselves and turn and look and see Jesus and have saving faith in what he did on the cross alone as the sole sacrifice for their sins so that they might come to life and life everlasting as they trust in you. Help us now to consider these truths. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. Paul writes then as a, as a flow from his thought about Jesus' resurrection. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So remember what we talked about last week, that the issue in the Corinthian church was is that they were not denying the resurrection of Jesus, but they were denying the possibility of the resurrection of his followers. They were thinking that maybe 
there was this sort of soul or spirit resurrection of believers. They weren't necessarily denying an eternity, but they were denying the bodily resurrection of believers. And then remember the logic from last week. Paul was saying, well, if you deny the fleshly bodily resurrection of believers using that same logic, you also must deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so that's what he worked on last week, refuting that poor logic that they had and showing them all of the negative consequences that would come from that logic. And now he's going to handle what is the initial objection that Christians are not actually raised in the flesh, a bodily resurrection. And so now he's handling that and he's sort of anticipating their question, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body, flesh and bones, what kind of body do they come Verse 36, I love this. He's not politically correct. He doesn't dance around the issue. He says, <laughs> you foolish person. Uh, I think that's helpful, honestly. Um, you know, a good pastor sometimes just calls it like it is. Doesn't dance around it. He's not scared. You know what I mean? He's not, he's not wimpy. He doesn't have, he doesn't, he's not afraid to offend. All right? If you ever catch me afraid to just tell you like it is, then don't walk, run to another church. Sometimes we just need people to tell it like it is. And we want to be gra- gracious and humble. But I love the model here of Paul just calling the Corinthians fools. Because what's it li- on the line here is eternity. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And then he goes into an example of nature, verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen And to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. All right, now if that's the first time you've read that, I realize where it can get kind of confusing. What's he talking about? He's talking about seed, and then he's talking about birds and animals and, and different types of flesh, and then he kind of transitions into this sort of heavenly analogy. Here's, I think, what we can summarize what Paul is saying there is he's trying to draw in their hearts some examples from things that they realize that there is a, a similarity but a difference between their bodies now and the bodies that that we will have as Christians in the life to come. And so he's saying, just like a seed that is put into the ground dies and then sprouts forth into a plant or a tree or some sort of fruit-bearing thing, he's drawing that analogy that that is kind of what like our bodies are. There's a certain continuity to our life, our bodies now and then, but there's a a discontinuity. We will not be like we are now. And then he just, to just sort of contrast in their minds, says that you can see here there's different kinds of flesh. There's animals, there's birds, and also there's a different sort of flesh. There's an earthly flesh, the bodies that we have now, and then there's a heavenly flesh, which will be similar but different and much more glorious. And now he goes on to unpack what more specifically this will look like. So let's read in verse 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And when you see that term, the resurrection of the dead, it means the coming back to life in bodily form 
of those who have died. What is sown or what is put into the ground is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Okay, now we've got to read this slow and we've got to think about this because, again, if this is the first time you're reading this or maybe the first time in a long time, you can, you can sort of get lost in the transition of the language and the comparison that he uses. And he uses words that we don't necessarily use on an everyday basis like, like imperishable and perishable and dishonor and glory. And so let's just kind of look at four different contrasts that he makes there. We, I think I put them on the screen here. You can just see, uh, just put the next uh, slide up about the four different categories here of, of perishable, imperishable, dishonor, glory, weakness, power, natural, and spiritual. And you see these four different comparisons he makes here. And I just want us to just very simply just think about these for a second. He's saying that our body now is perishable. In many ways, it's dishonorable. It's weak and it's natural. But the body that we will have, the real flesh and blood body that we will have, it's not perishable, it's, it's imperishable. It doesn't break down. It doesn't, doesn't get cancer. You know that when you grow older, you actually shrink a little bit? Did you know that? I just went home to California, taking my boys to California to visit my parents, and they have this little door that they would measure my brother and I on, you know. And um, like when I was 16 or 17, I, I think I was like 5'10 and a half. And I went, and I'm 5'10 now. I'm shrinking. <laughs> and then my 12-year-old son is like just as tall as I am. That was a little discouraging. But the point is, is that we, like we break down, don't we? And, and Paul gives us these words that there's this, there's this hope that we have of the life to come, that it's not like some sort of intangible, ghostly sort of merely spirit existence, but it is a real, fleshly, similar to what we have now, but imperishable flesh that we have. And that it never disintegrates, it never wastes away, it never breaks down. That is a glorious thing to meditate on for those of us whose bodies are starting to fail us. He then says that what we have now is a body that is is sown in dishonor. The body that we have will be sown in glory. I mean, just think about the dishonor, really some of the, the humility of just our bodies in their bare essence. Think about just the, I think the, inner sort of turmoil that all of us have as we grow older and think about how our bodies are changing. Just think about even the social implications of how much time we spend trying to cover the dishonor or less presentable parts of our body and how that is going into the ground to die but what will be, what will be resurrected will be completely glorious and without shame and, and no no, no sense of any social hitch or embarrassment. Think about the freedom and the, the unaltered joy of this hope that Paul is talking about in our bodies. Joints that don't pop, backs that don't get sore, 
stomachs that don't get sick when you eat the wrong thing, brains that don't get headaches, muscles that don't give out, organs that don't fail, bodies where there is no longer tension to present in the best possible way to the opposite sex. None of that tension exists. All of that dishonor, all of that shame, it's gone. And what is raised is glorious. He says it's what we're putting into the ground is weak. But what is raised is powerful. I was thinking about this this week. I was just thinking about the weakness still of my own flesh and how even though I've been a Christian now since I think sometime in the spring of 1989 is when I truly heard the gospel. And I believe at that moment I made a decision to turn away from my sin and trust in Jesus as I heard the good news of what Jesus has done on the cross for me and that my only hope would be found in what Christ has done for me, not in myself, not in my good works. And I think sometime around there I turned from sin and I turned towards faith in Jesus but let me tell you friends since that that time in 1989 when I was a senior in high school my life has been marked by many 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 failures and giving into temptation and weakness and the tug of the flesh and I imagine to some degree the rest of my life life will still be to some degree marked by this weakness I'm not talking about how much you can bench press. I'm talking about this sort of weakness that exists in our flesh, this tug, this tug in us. And Paul says that is going to die, but what will be raised will be powerful and perfect and completely satisfied with God and all that he has for us. Friends, I, in some sense, I can't, not, not in some sense, in a total sense, I cannot wait for that day when I no longer have to be- battle with my weak flesh. And then Paul concludes this by saying that what is going to be put in the ground and die like a seed is is our natural body and what is raised is the spiritual body. Now by this I don't think he means a non-physical body because we'll read about that in just a second from several other verses. But a body that is animated and empowered by the Holy Spirit. A body that is now fueled. It's fueled. Not by rest and food and our own strength but it is empowered and animated completely by the Holy Spirit. Well, let's keep reading in verse 50. Beautiful little four word groupings there for you to meditate on and, and, and take hope in. But he continues now after he makes that analogy into verse 50, talking about some more specifics about how this will happen and what we will be like. He says in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, that which passes away, it can't, in, it can't inherit that which goes on forever. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we shall not all die. When you say see sleep in the New Testament, oftentimes that's a reference to death. We shall not all sleep or we shall not all die, but we shall all 
be changed. And when in that all there, he's not speaking universally all. He's speaking specifically to Christians who here who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus. So he's saying that there are some Christians that are going to be around on that day when Jesus comes back and they won't have died, but the vast majority of us will die. But regardless, whether you're alive on that day when Jesus comes to take his people or whether you have already been dead for many, many years, we shall all be changed. And how will this happen? Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So what's that going to look like? What are we what are we going to look like when we are raised in this imperishable, glorious, powerful spiritual body. We have wings. Are we dressed in a white robe? What do we look like? Do we sort of have some sort of radio? Do we have a halo? Do we, do we get issued a harp depending on, you know, our musical taste? Or what, what is it? No, friends. All these sort of folksy, false, really cartoon-like depictions of heaven are just completely unbiblical. In Christ, we have a picture of what we will look like. This is what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. And so clearly, right there, Paul is saying that we are going to be like Jesus after His resurrection. And so if you read the end of the Gospels, you see this beautiful picture of Jesus who has come back in the flesh, right? Jesus has come back in the flesh. That's the point that Paul was making last week. He comes back in the flesh and He appears to over 500 people. He, he, he walks on the earth for 40 days and He's there with His disciples. He's with them. He shares a meal with them. In fact, he even says to them to prove to them his fleshliness. He says, put your hands in my hands. He's a completely resurrected and perfect body. But yet, actually, in that sense, which is really interesting here, is he still has the scars on his hands and the, the spear wound in his side. I don't think that we will have our wounds in our resurrected body. I think that, that Jesus, he maintains those skin those wounds of his skin and flesh as a sort of symbol of his victory over death. But he, is, he has this resurrected body that is flesh and blood that the disciples can touch and eat with and see and recognize. And Jesus says we will have a body like him. This is what it says in 1 John 3, 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So what will our resurrected body be like? It will be like Jesus' resurrected body. Now, friends, I think we need to guard ourselves from unwarranted speculation of what all that will look like. I think we will be known. There's many uh, evidences in the New Testament that says that we will we will, seem, we will be known by others. We will have, maintain the, the, the individuality that we have. We will be recognized. But what our bodies are going to look like, 
I think that the glory of Jesus and being in his presence will far surpass any sort of want that we may have to have a sort of different or better body. I think that we will be perfect. I think that we will be glorious. I think that we will be imperishable, powerful, and spiritual. And I think we can wonder about that. And if we've got you know, something about our body now that we don't like, will we be prettier or will we be more muscular or will we be taller or can I throw a football farther or whatever if you're still caught up in Uncle Rico type mentality, <laughs> whatever. It's a Napoleon Dynamite reference, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Friends, do you realize how sort of, how sort of selfish and small that sort of thinking is? Well, well, I look like the magazine cover. Do you, see how, do you see how you miss the point? You'll be like Jesus. That, that is, there's an indescribability to that. You will be like Jesus if that's not enough. If you, if you want to look like the NFL linebacker or the model from Cosmopolitan, you, you, you are, you, your head is still so in the mud of this life that, friends, Christ wants to lift you from that, you will be like Jesus. <laughs> and that will be glorious. And that will be utterly satisfying. And there will be no lack or want or anything left that we could desire besides that. You'll look like yourself, I think, to some degree. People will know you. I'll be Brad. You'll be Joe. You'll be Susie. But we will be like Jesus. And that will happen in an instant. And verse 54 goes on and he says, but when the perishable puts on the imperishable, in other words, when this, this broken down body gets changed by Jesus and the mortal puts on immortality, in other words, the, the, the flesh that passes away puts on the flesh that will never pass away, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And here Paul quotes and combines Two verses from Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13 where he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O, or, o death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Friends, do you see this? Do you see what Paul... I mean, he could have... It would have been fine if he would have just said, Death is swallowed up with victory. If he would have just made the theological statement that death is swallowed up in victory. He, he crosses the goal line with that statement, death is swallowed up in victory. But then he doesn't just hand the ball to the referee. No, no, no. He, he then does a dance in the end zone. He taunts death. Listen, this should bring you joy and confidence. He spins that ball. He does a little icky wood shuffle. I know I'm dating myself. That's early 80s. But he does a dance. He gets a penalty flag thrown on him by hell and all of its minions. He taunts death. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Where's your stink, punk? That's what he does right there. That should give us, and I wouldn't recommend that we do that because we are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we can draw from that truth and we can revel in that taunting that Paul does of death right there. Think about that truth. Paul taunts death. Think about, friends, how death taunts us. You ever been in a hospital room where somebody's gravely ill and the family is hanging by a thread, just hanging for every word from a doctor about what the prognosis might be 
and how emotionally debilitating and draining that is to be in a situation where death seems to be taunting. You see here where Paul says there's coming a day when the tables will be turned and Jesus' victory on the cross will finally and fully defeat death. And here Paul taunts death in its futility and mocks it. Because I take great comfort by Paul's end zone dance there on death. He goes on, Oh, death, where is your sting? Verse 56, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, that last verse is so important. He's not just saying this so that you will know this, so that you have some sort of, that we will have some sort of cognitive knowledge, that we'll have some sort of doctrinal piece of information that we can put in a catechism so that we know what our body is going to be like or we know what the end is going to look like uh, for us in the future. But yes, that's important to know that. But then he says that this truth should then produce something in us. It should produce in us a, a sort of confidence here and now. Have you ever heard that phrase that they're so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good? All right, that's a cute little thing that we put on coffee cups. We, 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 we say about people who convict us because they really love Jesus and we're sort of rubbed the wrong way by that. But I think it's completely false. I think it's completely false. Now, you can be a knucklehead, no doubt about it. The church is full of people who don't know how to maturely walk in Christ and they're just weird people to be around. But I think that, that Paul is saying right here that, that it... You, you should be so heavy. The only way you can be of any earthly good is if your heart and your mind and your soul is just fixed on the victory that is to come. <laughs> he says here that because of this, because Jesus is raised from the dead, because he has guaranteed your resurrection from the dead, therefore, as a consequence of that, because your heart longs for and is guaranteed by the Spirit, this truth, that this should free you to here and now abound in the work of the Lord. So, in a sense, the only way to be of any earthly good is to be heavenly minded. Do you see that? I think some of you use that phrase because you guys were a little cool on that anyway. So now you can stop saying that. All right. All right, so just a few things here before we move on to our three implications and then we'll be done. Just to summarize Paul's thought here, when Christians die, when you die, when I die, if you're a believer in Jesus, and for all of our friends and families and Christians that have gone before us, when we die, our spirits, souls, go immediately to be with the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 23, that he desired to stay in some sense, but he wanted to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. When he departed, Paul had the sense and reality that to depart is to be with Christ, which is better by far. In fact, he says that in 2 Corinthians 5.8. He says, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the Lord, away from the body, and at home with the Lord. So to be absent from the body 
is to be with the Lord. Jesus says to the thief on the cross at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 23 and 43, he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. You know, remember that story where the thief confesses trust in Jesus in those last moments of his life. And Jesus says to him that today you will be with me in paradise. So I, I just want to reiterate that when Christians die, their spirit, soul go immediately to be with the Lord. There is no such thing as purgatory or soul sleep. If you come from a Catholic background, you probably learn that very false and, and, and very wrong and, and, and unbiblical doctrine of some sort of purgatory, a sort of maybe potential post-mortem opportunity for maybe a, a, a relative that has passed on to accept Christ if, if in, in this sort of purgatory state. Friends, there's nothing in the Bible to support that. That comes, actually, uh, I think it's Genesis, comes from one of the, apop- uh, the apocryphal books. Uh, there's some books that were part of the Jewish uh, community in the Old Testament times. They didn't make it into the Old Testament Bible that we know of it, but it's the Apocrypha, and the Catholic Church actually uses those books. They're not inspired scripture, but in one of those books, which have some good things in them and are helpful, uh, there's this sort of reference to this this purgatory, uh, which is false and harmful, and there's nothing like that in the Bible. There's no such thing as purgatory. There's no post-death chances to turn to the Lord. So when Christians die, their souls go immediately to be with the Lord. When Jesus comes again, he will resurrect our bodies and unite them again with our spirit, making us finally and fully glorified with him. So what happens is when, when we die, and Jesus has not come back again yet, our bodies go into the ground, and our spirits go immediately to be with the Lord. But our glorification, the completion of our redemption is not yet finalized. That will be finalized when Jesus comes again. And then literally, he will meet, he will, he will cause the reuniting of our dead bodies. They will be resurrected. And you say, well, what if this person was blown up in war? What if this person was cremated? Friends, that's what, uh, come on, God, can, God formed the first man out of dust. Don't you think, I mean, come on, don't get hung up by that. God can do whatever he wants. God creates Something out of nothing. And in an instant, our glorification, our redemption is complete in that day that is yet to come. So there's no gap between death and Jesus. We go instantly to be with the Lord, but there is this day coming, which is the finality of our redemption and glorification, where on that day when Jesus comes again, our spirit and our body reunite in this perfect final and full redemption of our body, soul, and mind. Friends, thinking on that day, longing for that day, should cause joy and confidence to rise up in our souls. I think that's what Paul is saying in the second half of this chapter. Now, before I move on to three implications to close of these texts, I just want to offer a brief, uh, gentle, and pastoral word about books, popular books on uh, near-death or heaven-and-back-again experiences. Um, Friends, I know that some of you have probably read these books. There was a book by a man named Don Piper, I think, called 90 Minutes in Heaven. By the way, that Don Piper is no relation to John Piper. Um, 
And that book, uh, which was very popular, I think, in the 90s, speaks about 90 minutes that he supposedly spent in heaven. Haven't read it, have read many reviews about it. I think it's um, very, very unhelpful. It, uh, from what I understand, presents a Christless heaven. Uh, the m- human mind is a very powerful thing, and I uh, want to be careful about commenting too much about that book because I haven't read it. But then there's also a newer book about a little boy who's the son of a pastor who evidently had some sort of um, deathbed experience. I don't think he ever, uh, by the medical people around, was um, uh, declared as passed away. I'm not sure. I, I actually bought the book to read it because I know a lot of people are reading about it, and I like to keep up to date with things that people might be reading to help them pastorally. I have read um, some pretty significant sections of the book. Um, and I'm going to be generous here, but I think it's an unhelpful book. I think it's not uh, worth reading. The Bible is very clear that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It would be, in fact, I think it would be cruel of the Lord to show his glory and all that it is and then send somebody back down to earth. Now, how do we account for these experiences? It seems to be in this book that the father, who's a pastor, several years later, um, sort of hears the son saying something. I'm not saying the son didn't have some sort of experience. Obviously, he did. He seemed to be a precocious, very likable little boy. But I, I think that there probably very likely was a lot of suggested thought in there from the parents. Again, I want to be generous. But friends, more poignantly about where we can look at Scripture to think about these seemingly to heaven and back experiences, I would encourage you to read the story, the parable that Jesus gives about Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. The the resurrection of, I mean, not the resurrection, that's in John, a different Lazarus, Lazarus and the rich man, the death of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. In this story, Jesus speaks about two men who have died, a rich man and this poor man named Lazarus. Both of them die, and he gives this parable about how the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to Abraham's side, which is a Jewish phrase that means heaven. It's not a sort of soul sleep or secondary state. It means heaven. So this rich man has gone to hell, and this poor man, Lazarus, has gone to heaven. And then there is this, and again, this is a parable where Jesus is teaching something here. He gives this sort of analogy or this, this scene where this, this man in hell is speaking to Abraham to try and get him to ask the other man to come back from the dead to go warn his relatives. And, and clearly Jesus says there in that teaching that he draws out that even if this dead guy did come back from the dead to warn your relatives, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe somebody that's resurrected from the dead. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying that if they don't believe the word of God, If their heart isn't made soft and regenerated and life doesn't come through the word of God, it's not going to come through this post-resurrection experience of Lazarus. And friends, I think we are in danger of the same thing today when we think about these things. Friends, the Lord does not need additional experiences to authenticate his word. Do you see the slippery slope that that would get us on? Friends, heaven is for real because God says it is in his word. I don't want to discourage you if you've read those books, but I just want to help you pastorally 
that that, I think, can put you on an unhealthy trajectory of validating eternal truth by something outside of God's glorious and gracious revealed truth. All right, three implications now of our resurrection bodies. Number one, our earthly body is important, but it's not ultimate. Oh, this is a truth that Americans need to hear. Our earthly body is important, but it's not ultimate. I'm not diminishing this body. We should take care of it. Paul, earlier on in this same book, in 1 Corinthians 6, calls it the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we should glorify God in our bodies. He makes that point at the end of chapter 6, where he speaks about how we should refrain from sexual immorality or sexual contact with anyone outside of marriage. And by the way, let me just say here, if you are connected to anybody in any sort of sexual relationship and you are not married to them, I beg you, brother or sister, turn from your sin and turn towards satisfaction in Jesus alone. That's a, side, that's a sidebar there. We spoke about that when we handled chapter 6. But I'm not diminishing this body, but do you realize how we obsess over this body? Do you realize how we make an idol out of our fitness and our appearance? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try our best to look good for our potential spouses or our spouses, but I am saying that many Christians cross the line into an over-obsessed idolatry where we make this body ultimate. Do you obsess over your body? I'm not saying that there's not much uh, value in pursuing physical fitness. But do you obsess over your body? Have you made an idol out of your body or someone else's body? Young man, have you boiled down satisfaction in this life to the very temporal and passing worth of some young woman's figure and body? Do you realize what we're doing when we buy into the cultural lie of magic diet pills and tanning beds and all sorts of overindulgent, appearance-driven things? We are unwittingly buying into this lie that this body is more important than it really is. Friends, we should be in shape. We should eat good, certainly. But this body is not ultimate, and thank God for that. Secondly, we are only fully and finally healed at our resurrection. We are only fully and finally healed at our resurrection. Some Christians, well-meaning, I'm sure, but who often have not been instructed in good biblical theology and a good theology of the atonement, have overreached and tried to bring all of the promises of the atonement and all of the guarantees of our healing from the life that is to come and apply them all to the life here and now. 
And so you see oftentimes where, where you hear, I'm sure we I've even said things like this in a less informed time in my life where I hear about a brother or sister who is sick and I say, well, in Jesus' name, you are healed. Or just claim your healing. There's healing in the atonement. It's not God's will for you to be sick. You, you can just claim this healing. Friends, I think that that comes from a heart of, of compassion and desire for God, but it is a very uninformed biblical stance. Does God heal? Yes, God heals. In fact, we read about in 1 Corinthians 12 where he gives this gift of healing. We read about in James 5 where he says that are any of you sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let him be anointed. Let the prayer of the faithful people of God bring about much good. And we can be healed. We see Jesus heal sickness all throughout the Gospels. But friends, do you realize that these healings here in this earth are just a sort of inbreaking. It's just like the door cracking so that the light of heaven can shine through and draw us to eternity, not to cause us to just get healed and then run off and be satisfied with this life. Yes, God heals, but does God always heal ultimately here in this life? No, in fact, usually not. And so, how do we handle brothers and sisters that are sick? Friends, we pray for them, and we believe that God in His kindness might, in His sovereign grace, heal them even now. Or we encourage them to go to a doctor, and we take advantage of the common grace of medical technology, knowing that God works through that. And we believe that our lives can be made better, that surgeries cure things, that cancers can be cut out that diseases can be healed. But friends, even when God heals us, either through some supernatural prayer or instantaneous miracle or through a physician or through time, friends, we all still eventually die. And so when we set our hope in a healing that is just here in this life, friends, we again have our head in the mud. Our final and full healing comes only at the resurrection. And this should give us a sort of confidence to plead that God would heal us now, but an otherworldly satisfaction to realize that his purposes go beyond just these 80 years. So friends, how do we, how do we handle these things? Well, I just this week got an email from Stephen Swinehart, who is a member, dear brother in this church, and um, was diagnosed with a form of cancer some years ago. The Lord healed him of that through, um, through just his grace and, and modern medicine. And so he's had a clean bill of health. Every year he has to go back to uh, Houston to get a checkup. Just this week got a great checkup, checkup, another clean bill of health. And we believe that years ago God healed Stephen. But friends, like every other person who has gotten over some health crisis or cancer, we're all still going to die. And so the full and final healing comes only at the resurrection. Just got an email last night about a dear brother in our community, a well-respected Christian who has been diagnosed with a brain tumor. Don't know all the facts, but Lord willing, we'll hear more about it here in the coming days. How do we handle this? We pray that God would heal this brother. We have confidence in God that he can do this. And we ask God to do this unashamedly. And it's good and righteous for us to desire that God would do this. Believing that he can. 
to show his glory, either in through extra years that he may give this brother, or if he doesn't give this brother those extra years, then God would some way be glorified to draw our hearts away from just this life to the life that is to come. But see, friends, either way, this brother, whether God chooses to heal him or not, and that is certainly our prayer, either way, we are only finally and fully resurrected and healed at the resurrection. Jeremy, can you go turn those lights back on? Thank you, brother. <laughs> Our lights only fully work when that day comes. <laughs> so our earthly body is important, but not ultimate. And we are only fully and finally healed at our resurrection. And thirdly, friend, get this. For Christians, death is not dying. For Christians, death is not dying. Psalm 23 puts it this way in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Death comes, but it's merely a passageway into eternal life. We didn't plan it, but that little mishap with the lights was actually a beautiful little illustration of the fact that the darkness of death is merely a passageway into life eternal. Friends, where's your hope? Is your hope here just in this life? Is your hope in your health or your wealth, or your attractiveness. This second half of 1 Corinthians is here so that the Holy Spirit might turn our attention away from this broken flesh and give hope to His people so that they can be confident that we will finally and fully one day be freed to worship Him without limitation. That we'll be real. That we'll be resurrected people. That we'll be like Jesus. And that the joy of heaven will not just be the health and immortality of our bodies, but that the joy of heaven will be that given those immortal and perfect and glorious bodies, we will be free to enjoy Him forever. In fact, that's the first statement of the Westminster Catechism or Confession of Faith, Catechism of Faith. What is the chief end of man? To know God and enjoy Him forever. So friends, even as we hope in this resurrected body, even as we long for this day when disease and cancer and sickness and sore backs and, and bloated bodies. And even when we long for that day, friends, even that glorious hope is not an end to itself. 
That glorious hope merely frees us to enjoy what we were created to enjoy, which is God Himself forever, where He alone will be our satisfaction. Oh, friends, that is a day that when you hunker down on that truth, it will free you from the clutches of this world. And it will release you from the grip of this, imper- this perishable flesh that so often drags us down. Christian, where's your hope? Is it in the life to come? Or is it tangled down here in the mud of this perishable flesh? Lift up your eyes, friends. Are you sick? Come, let's be prayed for. Let's believe God to do something. Here now is a testimony of His greatness. But let's categorize that appropriately and realize that it's just, it's just a... It's just a drop of grace, a temporary drop of grace to point us towards the permanent grace of heaven. Are you not yet a believer and it has become apparent to you in these past few minutes? Friends, turn away from confidence in yourself. Turn away from your idolatry. Turn away from your sin and turn towards faith in Jesus. Friends, this is what it means to be a Christian to not trust in your own righteousness, to not love your sin more than you love Jesus. Look to Him right now, even now. Believe in Jesus and what He has done on the cross in His death, His burial, and His resurrection as the sole work that will make you right before your Creator. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus. Even right now, do it right now. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to repeat a certain trick phrase after me. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus right now. Do it, friend. Do it. That's what it means to be a Christian. To turn away from trusting in yourself. Turn away from sin and turn towards trust in Jesus. Does it mean you become perfect and sinless? No. It means that you've been born again. Do it right now, even right now. And this promise can be yours as well. Let's pray. And ask the Lord to seal these things. Thank you, Father, for this glorious truth of heaven. I confess, Lord, that my life is so mired in maintaining the right weight and staying in shape and how I look and how I feel. And Lord, some of that certainly is appropriate for us to be good stewards of our bodies. But Lord, so much of it in my life I recognize is just idolatry. Free me from an obsession with this broken flesh. Free us, Lord, from a temporal view of things. And let these words, let this guarantee from Paul about our resurrection lift our souls, lift our spirits so that we would hope in the glorious certainty of our glorification. And Lord, for my friend in this room who's not yet a believer in Jesus, Lord, would you just woo them with your extravagant grace? What does this world have to offer in comparison to this joy? And it's not just an eternal joy. It's a joy even here and now. Life in Christ is better than this broken world. It's better than guilt. It's better than shame. It's 
better than self-trust. And Lord, I pray by your beautiful, extravagant grace that you would break through into any dead heart in this room and you would cause people to see Jesus and trust in you. Do that, I pray, for your glory and our joy. And as we worship you and respond to you now, God, stir in our hearts an affection for Jesus. And I pray it in his glorious name. Amen.